Good morning. Happy birthday uh, to RP. We're glad you're here. If you're just joining us, and we're, we're glad that you joined us for our birthday party. And more than that, we're glad that you joined us to uh, celebrate our God, uh, worship together, and now have the privilege that God would condescend and through his word to speak to us. And so if you have a Bible, we are in the book of Exodus. And we're in Exodus chapters 22 and 23 this morning. So you can Begin to work your way there if you have that, or turn on your phone. Uh, either the, I want to hear either the turning of the pages of Scripture or the glow of God's Word on your face from your screen. Um, but we just want you to see the Word so that you test all things in light of God's Word. Well, as you're turning there, anyone here a member of or ever been a member of Planet Fitness? No Planet Fitness? Okay. Do you know what the slogan on the wall says? Do you remember that? Uh, close, yeah. This is a judgment-free zone. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to read to you a story from CBS News. <laughs> Eric Stagno, 34, was arrested without incident and charged with indecent exposure, lewdness, and disorderly conduct after police responded to a crowded gym in Plasto, New Hampshire. When officers arrived, they found him there completely nude, on his knees in a yoga-type position. Police Captain Brett Morgan told the Boston Globe, he walked into the gym, stripped down at the door, then he proceeded to walk back and forth a couple times before settling on the yoga mats. The story goes on and says, uh, as they arrested him and handcuffed him and dragged him out, the only thing that he said was, I, I thought this was a judgment-free zone. <laughs> Now, what Eric represents there is actually kind of a, it's humorous because on the one level, it is the idea of the postmodern idea of freedom. We should be able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, and that's a kind of real postmodern kind of freedom. Well, we're in the book of Exodus right now, and we're at this part in the story where God has rescued his people out of slavery to bring them into a place of freedom. But we've said God always frees us from something to something. So in Israel's case, from slavery in Egypt to the family of God with him. Or in our case, from, the sin and bond, from bondage of sin to life in Christ. So it's, just, it's not just freedom to do whatever we want. It's freedom with the right constraints. And for true freedom, the biblical freedom, is not kind of the modern definition, but, but more of uh, embracing the, the, the right constraints for our flourishing, for our design. So, so if you think about design and constraints, this makes sense. So you, you could take a fish out of water and put it up in a tree or, or on your couch and that would be a kind of freedom for the fish. It would be a freedom from the water that it was, was constrained to. But it would not be a freedom that leads to its flourishing. In fact, after it flops around for a few minutes on your couch, if you don't return it back to its uh, goldfish bowl, uh, that, that fish is going to die, right? We get that. So the right constraints lead to, lead to a, a, a full-orbed view of freedom. Uh, take, for example, a, a cheetah. It's, it's designed to live on the African plains, right? But if you uh, tranquilize that thing, put it in a plane, bring it to Rocky Mountain National Park, drop it off, and, and set it free, it would be a kind of freedom, but it wouldn't be a freedom that lasts very long. Right? It would die there. Or, or even, even in the things that we design, right? 
Um, they, they, they have a purpose and, and, and constraints to those purpose and they flourish in their purpose. So uh, some of you, if you had a, a sports bike or uh, maybe you're a Harley person, that is designed to, to flourish on the open highway. It's not designed to go off-road or into the lake, right? So, so if, you, if you can understand that like in, in design, then you can understand that God as our designer has designed us for certain things and his, his desire is to give you freedom from bondage of slavery and sin and all that and, and to flourish in your design. You know, the most important thing that the Bible says about you and me is not that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that's very important, and it has a lot to say about that. But that's not the most important thing it says about us. The most important thing it says about us is found in Genesis 1 and 2, that we were designed, and that we were designed specifically to reflect Him in the world, to represent, reflect Him in the world. The, it's the doctrine of the Imago Dei. That's the most important thing uh, about us. That, that we will flourish as we walk in our design of reflecting him. And so uh, as God has rescued his people and, and brought them in, uh, he's showing them uh, some constraints. It, it's, it's the law. But, but the law is not meant to uh, be a constraint that, that squashes our joy and freedom, but really provides an atmosphere for our joy and freedom together. And, and uh, part of that is just that we are to reflect his character, his will, his desire. And the law uh, reveals those things. Like last week, Pastor Rick talked on so, some things about the law that uh, in a different time, in a different place, in, in God's redemptive history are hard for us to understand now. But, but one of the reasons they're hard for us to understand now is because uh, that we've come so far. And God has given us so much more than what they had. But, but, but today we get to look at this portion of the law, and, and I hope you delight in it. I hope you see it as, as a great joy. In fact, if we uh, re- represent what, what God is reflecting about himself in this portion of the law, not only will we flourish, but, but the, the people in our world that need it most will flourish and find freedom as well. So if you have your Bible, Exodus 22 is where we're going to go today. This, this is uh, part of the law. So in, in Exodus 20 through 24 is the giving of the law. But this is a unique part of the law. And why I say that is because scholars point out in the first sections that we've read, it's been in the third person. So it's like if a person does this, this is what happens. If someone steals this, this is what you are to do. So it's all third person. But now starting in verse 21 of chapter 22 and through our section today, it's going to shift from third person, kind of here's this equals that, to first and second person. So it's as if God is saying, hey, hey. All, my, all of my law reveals my will and my character. But right here, I want you to hear my heart. I, I want you to look right at me, God is saying. I, I want you, so, so he gets very personal. I and you, the first and second person, he's having this conversation with his people. He wants them to reflect his character in the world. And there's a characteristic in these passages that begins to come to the surface. I'm not going to tell you what it is right now. I want you to see if you can figure it out. But uh, starting in verse 22, he, he's, he gets into the first and second person and he begins to give his people some, some, some more law. But he's going to deal with four groups of people right away. Uh, let, let's look at the first one. Verse 21 of chapter 22. Listen carefully. This is God's word. It says, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners 
in Egypt. And again, in the next chapter, in verse 9, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. So the first thing God brings up is this, this idea of, uh, of the category of a resident alien or foreigner. They, they were susceptible to exploitation and, and oppression because they had no family support and they had no uh, so economic support. They had no land. And so God was saying, as, as foreigners come into your midst, you are to treat them as image bearers. And... and the other thing that you need to know about this portion of the law is uh, in the ancient Near East, many, there, I mean, every, every people group had law codes. So, and many of them were echoed or even in some senses identical to what we've already read in the law. Shall not murder, don't tell lies, don't commit adultery. Like, like these things were in other cultures as well as part of God's common grace to people. But, but these laws are totally unique in the ancient Near East. No other culture had specific provisions for the protection of people that are not us, foreigners. Did you know that uh, Christopher Wright, one of the commentators I, I read, said of the 600 laws in the Old Testament, 30 of them deal with the right treatment of foreigners more than any other topic in the law. This was unheard of. So, so... Again, this is for a particular time and place for a particular people, but it still reveals God's character and will and heart. So then we should ask the question, well, what does that mean for us as, a, uh, as the people of God today? Well, well there's many applications. One, one, again, just recognizing regardless of whether the person looks like you, speaks like you, uh, is in your socioeconomic class, because they're image bearers, God cares for them. God loves them and, and he wants his people to do the same. So, so, for example, whatever your political position is on the, the, the border situation right now, that, that, that could be all across the spectrum. But as image bearers, what, what should not be the case is any disdain for those people. Image bearers. What, what should be the case is, is a, a, a heartfelt care and concern and advocacy for, for people created in, the, in God's image who are just trying to get their families out of positions of violence and poverty and, and, and want to come to a place of security and safety. And it's what we would all want if we were in their position. And that's actually God's appeal to his people. He's like, you know what it's like to be in slavery. So, so when a foreigner comes in your, in your midst, treat them as you would have wanted to be treated. And so the, tr- the same is true for us. So that's the foreigner. And that gets played throughout the, the, old, the Old Testament into the New. And then there's two more groups of people in the next verse. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. So, so we've got uh, those that are uh, also taken advantage of across the world today and, and throughout history because they have no family support. They're, they're widows or they're orphans. And we begin to hear God's heart for these widows and orphans. Verse 23, if you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. That, that phrase, I will hear their cry, should, uh, if you've been with us in the series, should remind you of some things. The, the Israelites cried out to God and it says, the, the, it says that he heard their cry and he responded And he's saying, listen, if you take advantage of the most uh, vulnerable in your society, I'm going to hear their cry. And look what he says. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. God takes this seriously. 
Christopher Wright wrote in his commentary on this part, he says, when God sees a community that offers no care and provision for people in such need, then his anger is aroused. And then uh, we move into a fourth group of people that, that God's heart is for, and he wants his people to have a heart for. Verse 25, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, or the poor, we'll see. Do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. So, so in the, the, the law elsewhere, it, it is the righteous loan to the poor, but they don't loan to take advantage of them. In fact, among God's people, they weren't to loan to, to get any interest from them. Uh, but, but again, across the world today, the, the, so, so many... Um, so many people are oppressed just because of their economic position. The, the countries are built on the backs of poor people. He, he goes on, he says, If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? So he's like, listen, if, you're, if you give some money to the poor, you, you, uh, the, the only thing they have is their kind of one valuable thing, their, their outer garments, and you take that, like, make sure you give it back to them. You might be asking the question, well, why would you even take that if that's all they have? And that might be the answer. Like, why would you even take advantage of, of someone in that way? Um, it, it is expensive to be poor. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe you haven't been poor for a while, but maybe you could think back to your early 20s, I can, it, it was expensive to be poor. Like if you get a ticket or your insurance, like, and you're living check, paycheck to paycheck, like it's hard. And you can go down to parts in our city now and, and drive and you can see check cashing places because of their, their, their background or their history or whatever. They can't have banks or whatever. Uh, you go to that and, and they could charge up to 12% interest on that check. So if you have a $1,000 check and they take $120 away right away, you can just see the system is set up against them. And God is saying, that should not be among my people because these are image bearers. I care for them. In fact, in chapter 23, God's going to set up not just personal kind of positions with these groups of people, but systemic positions. Look at verse 10 of chapter 23. It says, for six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among you, your people, may get food from it. And the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. God was saying, in the, the rhythm of your life, I want to build it into your, your, your calendars that you, you, you have an awareness of the poor. So every seven days, not only do you get a day off, but, but all of your servants and all of the, your cattle and everyone else gets a day off for their refreshment. Every seven years, I want you to uh, not, uh, not farm every plot of land, but, but leave some plots of land uh, just to grow wild so that the poor can come in and, and find food. And, and later in the law, they'll be things called the gleaning laws where uh, they would, the farmers were to go through and harvest but not, not be so diligent but, but to leave some scrap like, like not go over a second time so that poor people could come into the field and get food as well and then every seven years the, the indentured servants are, are to be set free and then every 49 years, or seven times seven, the 50th year uh, was to be a year of jubilee where, where, where the, the, 
where families who have, have gone down and, and they've lost their land and they've, they, they've lost everything, it's all to be restored to them every 50 years because there was, there was to be no uh, systemic and uh, multi-generational poverty among God's people. So when Jesus came on the scene, he says, uh, this is the, the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year of Jubilee. Jesus came to restore all things. And what Jesus came to restore is not just merely spiritual restoration. We'll we'll see that in a minute, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, If we look at these groups of people, the foreigner, the widow, the fatherless, and the poor, that's great to have laws uh, uh, that that care for those things. But but again, I've, I've asked this question, what does this reveal about the character of God? What characteristic does, do these laws reveal about God? And what is God calling us as his image bearers to have in that place? Well, if you look back at chapter 22, we see it in verse 27 again. It says, when, when they cry out, he's talking about the poor. When they cry out to me, I will hear. Again, we've heard that. For I am compassionate. Th- this word in the Hebrew is only used of God. I am compassionate. This is the first time in the Bible that that specific word has been used of God. It will be unpacked many more times in the book of Exodus. We, we had it in our assurance of pardon. It'll be unpacked throughout the rest of the Bible. But, but, but the characteristic that God wants us to reflect to the world is his compassion. When we walk in our design, we will flourish. But not only that, if we walk in this characteristic, those that need it most in our, in our world will flourish as well if we are walking in compassion. Again, it's all well and good to have the idea of we should be compassionate, but if you don't have uh, a justice system that undergirds that, then, then it doesn't make any sense as well. So in chapter 23, God says, in my, in, in my community, there, there will be a just system. Look at uh, the, the title for chapter 23, Laws of Justice and Mercy. We'll, we'll go th- through this pretty quickly, but, but in here we see witnesses, plaintiffs, and judges. But, but just, again, hear the heart of God for justice. It says, do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. So so there's both sides. So it's not, don't just go with the powerful and the rich, but on the other hand, don't just go with the poor because they're poor. Just be just, just be true. It makes me think of um, something I read by Pastor Garrett Kell. He proposed this one day. He said, if you were to design a justice system without knowing your lot in life, without knowing if you'd be victim or perpetrator, and without knowing if you'd be a police officer or a criminal, how would you create it? Well, the answer is we would create it as just and fair as possible. If we didn't know what side we'd be on, that, that's, and that's what God is casting vision for his people. It goes on. It kind of talks about when we have plaintiffs and, and enemies. Um, verse 4, if, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Again, this is just saying, like, listen, even if we have beef with each other, we're still image bearers together. We still care for each other. We can still uh, treat each other with dignity. And in fact, we can treat each other's animals with dignity because they're part of God's good design as well. 
He goes on to address judges in verse 6. Do not deny justice to poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. There's an interesting insight, right? He's talking to judges and he says, listen, don't don't be unjust. Don't don't acquit the guilty. Don't... um, don't put an innocent person to death. And then he says, I will not acquit the guilty. What God is saying is, uh, there, there really is no such thing on earth as the Supreme Court. There, there is only one judge, and he is the Supreme Court over all the judges of all, all time. And he will judge them as well. He says, do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Again, a, a justice system. This was for a particular time and a particular place for a particular people. And yet, you can see, even springing out of passages like this, so much of Jesus' own teaching. Love your enemies as yourself. He is teaching about caring for the poor, the widow, the foreigner, the orphan. We see so much of this rolling out. So, so it's, it wouldn't be hard to think about how this might apply to us. I, I think one, one way that it applies is that if we recognize where most of us live and the time and the place, it, it's very easy for us to be in this kind of bubble where we're like, system works pretty good for me. You know, it seems like it's fair. It seems like it's good. I, I don't need to... We can, we can very easily convince ourselves that because we don't see widows and orphans and poor and foreigners that, that other people will deal with that. But, but this is a call from God to God's people to reflect his image in the world. So, so it's a sin to be indifferent. James says, if anyone knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, to, to him that's sin. So, so there can't be an indifference to these things. Can't be, well, I'm good and my family's good, so I don't need to worry about maybe there's some injustices elsewhere in my world. And, and here's the other beautiful thing about our country. The beautiful thing about being American is we're invited into the system. We're invited to, to care about the poor, the widow, the foreigner, the orphan uh, through our votes and through our participation. Like this is uh, part of our heritage and we should rejoice in that. We should vote. We, we should get involved in civics. We, some of you should go into politics and, and, and work for, uh, for others and work for people that uh, the system is not working for. Again, because again, for God's people, it's not enough for it just to work for our families. All society will flourish when all society gets uh, what, this kind of characteristic lived out in God's way. Well, if we continued on, we, we, we see that uh, this uh, is calling us to compassion, right? We said that's the characteristic. Well, here's the thing about compassion. Compassion always, always, always requires a response. It requires a response. It's an outward response. It's a turning from self and turning towards others. Martin Luther said uh, one, one time when he was teaching through the book of Romans, he was talking about a, a definition of sin. He came up with this Latin term, incurvitus in se. Incurvitus in se. He says, sin is curved in on ourselves. <clears throat> Think of us kind of just curved in on our cell phones. And just all about ourselves, maybe our family, our, our good, all that, that that's, that's sinful because it's, it's, it's minimizing, it's, it's going small. But compassion is, is literally curving out towards others. 
It's opening ourselves up and going and reflecting God's image towards others. But it always requires action. So if if we were to kind of do a self-survey and we ask ourselves the question, am I a compassionate person? I think most of us would say, yeah, we're compassionate. I think that's because we confuse compassion with empathy. Well, I feel bad about what's happened in Turkey this week. Okay, that's sympathetic. Have you done anything about that? Well, no. Well, you're not compassionate. That Compassion always, always, when you look at compassion in the Old Testament and Jesus was filled with compassion, it was always then followed up by an actual action. In fact, this makes us kind of uncomfortable. But, but notice what Jesus says in, in Matthew 25. I'll put it on the screen. Matthew 25, he, he says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. That's compassion. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Compassion. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Again, that, that, that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Mark, are you saying that I thought we were saved by grace through faith? This sounds like we got to do something. No, no. Let's be very clear. The Bible is very clear. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But we will say time and time again, that faith never is to remain alone. You want to see if your faith is genuine? Then let's see your compassion. Let's see how you actually care for the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the the foreigner. This is where the rubber meets the road in our faith actually coming to life. This is what Jesus is getting at. So compassion always requires a response. It always requires a response. And so we do that individually. We are to train ourselves to be a reflex of God's image in the world, to see needs and meet needs. See needs and meet needs. Find needs in our city and meet them. We do that together. Here at, at, at Redemption Park, we, we try to form our, our gospel community specifically for this, to have this compassion built into it. So, so our gospel communities serve safe families and care portal and, and foster care systems. So orphans, our gospel communities serve SECOR, Southeast Christian Outreach, where in our own community, people are, have food insecurity and, and are just looking for meals. We, we serve there. We serve at Joshua Station for the, the homeless transitional housing. We serve in nursing homes now. Some gospel communities are going into nursing homes and serving their widows and orphans in this way. Uh, we, we do that uh, together hand in hand and we reflect the image of God in our community 
We, we do that as a church. We do that with our global partners that you support and, and give to uh, that, that we did in the, the Advent campaign. We, we do that... Um, for example, this week, as a church, we are going to show compassion. We're, we're giving $5,000 to Convoy of Hope, which is a Christian organization that is going into Turkey with, with fresh water and clothes and food to, to bring God's compassion into a difficult situation. You guys are doing that by extension through uh, your prayers and your giving. We do that through church planting. We believe churches should be planted not, not just for the worship of God. That's that's crucial, but also to develop this heart in, in, in God's people that re- represent our heart to show acts of compassion and reflect God in the world. So we, we do that through church planning. So how, how do we actually do this? Now, you, you may be feeling, if you did that self-assessment, am I a compassionate person or just an empathetic person? You, you may be feeling some guilt. That's not my purpose at all. I don't, I don't want you to feel guilt, or, or maybe just a little bit of guilt, uh, but that should then move you on, because guilt doesn't last, it's not a motivator, guilt, guilt is how a lot of world religions are, are set up, and then you just kind of go with that, but that's not, that's not God's motivation, that should move us to something else. In fact, even in our passage, God gives his people something more than just guilt, he, he gives them uh, a reminder of, uh, of the grace that has come to them in the past, and the grace that is coming to them in the future. So, so again, back in our passage, uh, the very first verses we read, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you were foreigners in Egypt. It's a reminder, you were foreigners, but remember what I did for you? Remember my grace to you? Remember how I rescued and redeemed you? You, you know what that was like. And so he's telling them, hold on to that. But also uh, there, there's future grace coming to them. Uh, again, we, we read it already uh, when he gives the Sabbath laws about the land and all that stuff. Guess what? They're not there yet. God has promised that one day they're going to go into a promised land full of milk and honey. And he's telling them to look forward to that day. So to hold on to these two realities. And that's where they are to live in between those two realities. The grace of the past and the grace of the future. But sadly, we know the rest of the story. The Israelites don't do that. And God will send prophet after prophet after prophet, warning them, calling them back, both to faithfulness to him and to care for widows and orphans and foreigners and poor people. And they just don't do it. They don't walk in that. But we're called to walk in that. And we'll say this every week when we're in the book of Exodus. We have a better covenant. We have a new covenant. But the, the, the principle still applies. We are to remember the grace of the past and remember the grace of the future. We hold on to the grace of the past. We, we look to the cross and we see that God so loved us that his compassion moved him to put on human flesh, to live a life of perfect obedience for the, before the Father and go to a cross and die in our place and shed his sin and give us his righteousness. And we hold on to that. We remember that. We sing about that every single week. We, we, we know that we are loved in Christ and we hold on to that. Amen? But that's not all we hold on to. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to make a new feast for you. I'm going to uh, welcome you into my kingdom with a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. You don't have to, as Dr. Blomberg said last week, you, you don't have to kick, fill out all your bucket list in this lifetime because you have all eternity to enjoy his presence and his creation forever and ever. And so we hold on to a fact that we have a, a future and a hope forever and ever. And in between these two great realities, we now live 
The grace of the past, the grace of the future. And as we hold on to that, we, we can live knowing that this life is just that long. The Apostle Paul said we have light and momentary affliction. And when you, when you see what he was talking about, we're like, oh, that doesn't sound light or momentary. Because he knew. He knew how he had been loved by God, and he will be loved by God, and he is loved by God. And so he lived in that reality. This is what we're called to. For the glory of God and the joy of all people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for your character that is revealed through your word and your law. Lord, we can't do it on our own, but we thank you that your spirit lives in us and desires to live through us to make much of Jesus in our acts of love and compassion towards one another in this room, but not just here across our city and across this world. So Lord, make Redemption Parker a place that brightly shines the light of your compassion to all people. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.